Clear for takeoff. Runway 28 left. Fly runway heading. Welcome to another brand new episode of Living in Flight, your go-to podcast for everything in the world of aviation. Exclusive interview conversations with industry professionals and enthusiasts. Strap on your seatbelt, put on your headset, and get ready for Living in Flight. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Living in Flight. Matt wasn't able to join us today, but I'm happy to introduce our next guest, Noah DeCamp. Noah flies air ambulance helicopters in northern Minnesota, and it was really interesting to learn about his career. Let's get to it. Hi, everybody. My name is Noah DeCamp, and uh, I'm a professional helicopter pilot here in the state of Minnesota. Um, I'll start by saying I'm, I'm a huge fan of the uh, in-flight podcasts. Um, been listening since the start. Um, podcasts in general, especially aviation, I've really found valuable over the years uh, just to kind of help me and I'm sure everybody finds the same. You kind of help you through a tough time. You hear everybody's story. Everybody uh, has their struggles. And it's really, really interesting. So hopefully um, somebody like I've gained from others can can gain something from my story. Um, so uh, if I go all the way back to uh, being a young kid, I've kind of found as I was preparing for this and, and going back and listening or not listening, but uh, really trying to dig deep into what got me here. Uh, I never really thought in my wildest dreams that I'd be sitting here um, talking to you about aviation and and I have the career and the the experiences that I had. I just had no idea it was possible. Um, but there are certainly uh, a chain of events that I've noticed as I go back into um, all into my younger years that really sort of led me and uh, ignited a spark that that got me to where I am. Uh, I have a I have my parents to thank for uh, taking us kids. I've got two younger brothers. We we they take us on vacation and uh, we'd go visit my grandparents in Arizona. And it was really awesome to be able to be exposed to the world of aviation, the airlines, you're on this big plane. Um, and as a, as a kid, you really don't know what to make of that. You're looking out the window, you look down, see everything so small from below. And it really sort of set this spark off in my mind, like, wow, this is really, really cool. But I had no idea that I could do something with this. So it just kind of filed away as a memory and you just go on and, and do life. Um, fast forward to uh, sort of the late junior high, high school years. Unfortunately, um, we my parents came home one day and uh, sat us down and, well, my dad said, I've got cancer. And so we it really sort of turned our life upside down. We really had no idea what to do. Um, and so we spent the better part of two years um, watching him uh, battle this disease. And it, it really, um, was, was a, t- a tough thing to watch as a young kid. I've, I've got my two younger brothers and, um, we sort of went through that together, but, uh, here I am 16, two years later. And, um, uh, my dad's getting really, really sick and we take him into the hospital and, uh, it's, it's the middle of the night in the summer. And they say, he's, he's really sick. He's got to go by helicopter. He's got to fly to Rochester. And so we thought, oh my gosh, um, you know what? We really didn't know what to make of it. And uh, so they load him up, and we walk outside. And when you have these experiences like this, you remember everything about the night. I remember the crickets, how they sounded. The the air is you know hot and humid. It's July in the middle of the night, and uh, the helicopter fires up and it's loud. They lift up. You got the wind blowing on us. And I can remember uh, seeing the pilot work the searchlight. He's he's pointing out all the the power lines and the light poles. 
and uh, points it right at us. And we've got this big light in our eyes and this wind and this loud noise. It just, it really, um, it just embeds in your mind. And, and maybe one of those um, sort of core memories that really um, solidify, but you just kind of file in the back of your mind. You don't really know what to make of it and what it's going to become, but it's certainly there. And I can, to this day, go right back to that moment, um, as I'm sure a lot of people can with a lot of different different memories from growing up. So here I am, um, off to college in the in my later years, and um, really had no idea what I wanted to do. Thought, well, I like business, I'll go be a business major. Well, then I found, okay, I could be an environmental science major. All right, well, I like the outdoors, I like fishing. I'll go be an environmental science major. But really had no idea what I was going to do with my life. Um, I was really fortunate. Again, it was my really the end of high school. My mom said, well, let's, uh, let's take a trip wherever you want to go. Let's do it. Um, we'll take all the family. We'll go. And so I said, well, we have, uh, we have family in Seattle. We've never been, let's, let's go to the Pacific Northwest. Let's check it out. And uh, little did I know, again, one of these, um, chain of events that would, would set, add and build and set off, um, this, this path that would eventually happen. So we get there and we're hanging out, having fun. At the time, uh, my cousin was flying um, for a sheriff's department out there in their helicopter. And he said, do you guys want to go for a ride? And we're like, yeah, okay, awesome. So we get in and again, I, I can still remember you know, the, the, the sound of the engine lighting off and, and you smell the jet A you know, exhaust that comes in the cabin. You feel the helicopter start to rock as it's spinning up. And it's just this really wild memory of like, whoa. We're in a helicopter. We're doing something that shouldn't be possible, but here we are. Um, and and really, again, just something that I never thought it could be possible. But it, it, here I am, and and um, and it, it's just something that really sort of sparked this journey. Um, so I go off to college, and um, I'm a big guy. I was like 270 pounds at the time, just kind of eating my feelings, maybe not dealing with things the appropriate way. And uh, I was out to dinner with a family friend at one time. And he was like, so what are you going to do with your life? And I was like, I have no idea. Um, but I said, I don't know what prompted me to say it. Um, but I said, you know, I've been researching and there's a flight school around and they have like this intro flight and I could like actually take the controls and fly a helicopter. But, you know, th- and that's something I want to do someday. And he said, well, why don't you do it right now? said, no, no, someday I'll, I'll do it. I'll, I'll really get to it. He said, here's the money. Here's $200. Go do this intro flight. And if you hate it, you know, that'll be the end of it. And if you love it, you know, maybe you can pursue it and see what it, see what it might take. So I thought, okay, I'll do it. Um, I can still remember calling to, uh, this flight school at Anoka and, you know, I had all these lists of questions. I had no idea what I was talking about. And I, I can remember asking the guy, you know, so what's the difference between part 61 and part 141? And, you know. Oh, yeah. I remember when I, the first time I came to in-flight. Absolutely. Same list of questions. Can you fly right. in the winter? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sure this guy, um, I, he, who would inevitably become my boss one day, um, I'm sure at the time he was like, all right, you know, this kid. So he, it, it, eventually he was just like, look. Let's let's book this intro flight. Come on, you can ask all the questions you want to the instructor, and um, and really the only way to know is to do it. So here I I show up in the um, it's the the fall of 2015. I remember the leaves were just you know peak color, right? And uh, we lift out of Anoka in this little R22, and uh, and all of a sudden you know here we go, take the controls one at a time, and 
by the end of this 30 minute intro flight, here I am shaking, holding all these controls. And I'm like, whoa, I am, I am flying a helicopter. Oh, it was a discovery flight in a, a helicopter. It was an intro flight in a helicopter. Um, I didn't even know that that was a thing. It, it is a thing. And so um, we landed from this and I thought, I, I have no idea what I'm doing, but I need to do more of this. It was just like a switch that flipped. Um, and so um, I, I started driving two days a week to Anoka from, uh, from Wisconsin where I was going to school. And I was doing le- uh, lessons in a helicopter. And I slowly was working towards my private license and um, took a private check ride and was just, you know, okay, what do I do now? Well, all right, well, I'll save up a little more money and okay, I'll start working towards commercial check. Right. I, I still at the time had no idea what I could do um, with this with this thing. And so I became a commercial pilot. And uh, at the time I started, uh, my CFI, who was really, really great, um, was like, you would be a good instructor. Let's start start building lesson plans in your free time. Start practicing teaching. So I was in my senior year of college at the time. And, uh, I would just sit at school for nine, 10 hours a day. And I'm building these PowerPoints and, um, practicing teaching. And it just, uh, it started to click. Um, I still had one huge hurdle, which was my weight at the time. Um, I was way, way, way too heavy, uh, to, to instruct in an R22 with any sort of clientele, unless that person was 80 pounds. Right. So I just started running. And I started running and kept running. And uh, I went from like 260 down to like 195. And all of a sudden, all these doors opened. I could I could take somebody who was 200 pounds and fly with them um, for more than 30 minutes, right? Hmm. And so it really became an awesome thing. So that uh, we're now at the end of 2017. And I'm spending all my time thinking about this and practicing and practicing um, at the same time I'm going to school. Um, and so... I take my CFI checkride and here we go. It's like the start of 2018. I, I graduate college that December and um, I'm faced with the decision, right? What do I do? Where do I go? And I decided, well, um, I guess I'll, I'll make a go at this. I'm a freshly minted 200 hour CFI flying Robinson R22s and R44s. And um, I was applying everywhere. I had an interview in, in Boston, in Arizona, um, I wasn't super excited about leaving my family and friends. And I got very, very lucky that at the time, it just so happened, I just passed my CFI checkride. And uh, the owner of the school that I was working at uh, said, hey, you know, your instructor is leaving. He's going off to bigger and better things. And um, we have an opening. So I, he he took me to lunch and I showed him my endorsements that I had printed off. And and he was really, really kind to, to give me a shot um, so that that spring I started and um, started slowly phasing into being the instructor. I really owe a lot to that guy. Um, he has a, a pretty cool operation. It's, it's pretty small up at Anoka. Um, he's got five helicopters. And at the time I was, I was it, I was the instructor at the school. So um, here I am 20 years old and I've got 10 students and I'm logging and tracking the maintenance for five helicopters. And, um, doing the billing for tours and surveying. And it was just a, a really cool experience. And he was pretty hands-off. You know, we'd talk on the phone, but I might see him once a week and, you know, how's it going? Everything going good? And here I am kind of running a flight school. Um, and it was just a really, really cool experience that I didn't really realize at the time was 
was so unique and valuable until I had left it. Can I ask you a quick question yeah, about absolutely. that? So, you know, when you, you have like in-flight, we had people come through here all the time. Oh, I just want my private, I just want my instrument. I want to buy a plane one day. Mm. What are the aspirations of people mm. generally when they go to helicopter school? Um, Minnesota and the Midwest in general is very unique. So some of the, most of the big helicopter flight schools that are, um, you know, something like a, like an ATP, right? Uh, the fixed wing equivalent have, uh, occur in places where the weather is nice, right? Because obviously Minnesota, we have a huge chunk of the year where the weather's terrible. Um, so most of the clientele that are really motivated and want to do this for a career end up going somewhere like Los Angeles, Phoenix, Florida, right? Where they can fly a lot of the year. Um, so I found that um, my students were kind of a mix. Um, some people who just wanted, really wanted to learn how to fly, they're going to get a private license and probably never do anything else. Um, some guys that are retiring um, had a lot of a, emphasis on a lot of uh, free money and time uh, that they had saved up. They're going to buy a helicopter and fly it around out of their backyard. Awesome. Cool. And then eventually, um, every once in a while, you get these people that um, are motivated and want to to take this uh, all the way as a career. And so it's kind of just a, uh, a mix of, of those things. And, um, you know, it, certain years there's more students than others. It's just very cyclical. Um, certainly there is a little bit more of a cost barrier on the helicopter side than the fixed wing side. Um, and a lot less you can do. Uh, there's a lot more ways in a helicopter that you can get into trouble than an airplane. And uh, the insurance companies know that, right? So um, unless you own a helicopter or rent one with an instructor, basically all you can do per the insurance is normal approaches to an airport, which at that point, you know, you you can't do any of the cool things that a helicopter can do. Um, so it's, it's definitely an interesting thing. And um, by the end, I was kind of working with these people that would come in like, you know, what are your goals? And if your goal is to, you know, really go all in on this, then let's do it. But if you just are going to get a private license, well, maybe, maybe airplanes is something that is better because you, you can actually, you know, not go broke doing this. Yeah. I've looked it up like to rent a helicopter is like more expensive than a multi. Than a multi. Yeah. It is. It is. It's, um, it's certainly, uh, it can be very cost prohibitive. Um, there's different ways around it, right? There's scholarships. Um, people, uh, get out of the military. They can use their GI bill benefits to, uh, to pay for that. Um, or you can just <laughs> hustle and hustle. work and work and work. Um, some people can get, are able to secure loans, things like that. Um, but it's certainly a long, uh, hard process to, to, to move forward, build the experience that you need to eventually end up at a job where you could settle down and have a career, which, you know, we'll kind of keep going forward and covering, but yeah, a very interesting mix for sure of uh, students that came. Uh, but I got really fortunate to not only uh, have the ability to instruct, but we had a lot of diverse flying out of that, uh, that company. Um, we were doing tours in Minneapolis and St. Paul. Uh, we built a really cool thing. Uh, we went through an entire company rebrand, launched a new website, and we started doing tours out of the uh, the restaurant, Holman's Table at St. Paul on the weekends, which has turned into a really awesome thing. You can go and get dinner. Um, there's different levels of tours that you can buy. You can go see Minneapolis, St. Paul, whatever you want. It's a really cool, unique experience that uh, really pairs well with that restaurant, which is really Did awesome. you take John up that time? I did. Well, so, I yeah, did. yeah, I yeah, saw yeah. it. I saw it. Absolutely. So for, for the listeners, John... Um, 
Shout out, John. Shout out to John. John taught me my private here at InFlight, and he also taught... He also taught uh, my private... I started with Amy, and then uh, I finished with John uh, here a couple years ago when I did my private fixed wing at InFlight, um, which we can circle back to. I've got, uh, all my, I've got all my list of things I really want to cover because um, I don't want to forget any part of the story, right? Um, so we're doing these tours right out of, um, out of Holman's Table. It's really awesome. Uh, we also had a fair amount of survey work, which was really, really cool. Um, we'd go take a biologist and go to these these uh, wind farms all across the Midwest. You know, they put up the big wind turbines and the government required that they survey for eagles and raptors and um, kind of birds of prey within these wind farms because the, the turbines were actually killing birds um, that don't have natural predators. Um, and so we'd go, we'd, we'd fly up 30 miles, go over a half mile, fly down 30 miles, these transects. And we'd look anytime we'd see a nest, circle it, take a picture, mark it on the GPS and keep going, which is really cool. And it taught me a lot of important things like how to set up a hangar for the night, how to get a crew car, how to book a hotel. These are all things as a young kid, I had no idea. And it's kind of a really cool experience that I, I didn't appreciate till later, um, having to sort of uh, manage all these things on my own on the fly. We didn't often know what city we'd stay in. These these projects could sometimes be 60 miles across and uh, you could spend two weeks just flying up and down, up and down, up and down, which is really, really awesome. Uh, and a great way to build um, meaningful hours mm-hmm. and experience, right? Like like we all need to to eventually move on to, to different things. Um, but eventually, uh, like we all do, I'm sure as CFIs, no matter how much you love it, you experience some form of burnout, right? And you um, you do this for long enough, and um, you just you your mind craves more and a new experience. Um, and um, it's no secret that uh, it's maybe sometimes difficult to make a living when you're a CFI. You know, we we work and we build all this experience, but um, it's kind of tough. To live. I think my first couple of years as a CFI I was living on like fifteen grand a year. Uh, I was driving. 40 miles one way to live in my grandma's basement for free while I was uh, doing all this um, shout out grandma. And uh, it was really, really um, a cool, but, but uh, a tough experience. Um, and eventually you run out of money, you kind of max out credit cards and you, you can't um, keep going as you're going. Right. So it was time for the next step. Um, there was a really, really cool at the time it was in person. It's since gone uh, virtual, but there was a really cool event called Heli Success that would happen every year in Vegas where you could go um, and bring your resume and they'd have speakers from every portion of the helicopter industry. It was designed specifically um, for people um, because it's, it's, it's kind of a lesser known uh, there's a little bit of mystery about the helicopter industry, right? There's not as much I know nothing about out it. there. Yeah, 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 sure. So you go to this event, you wear your best suit, right? Make sure your tie's tight. And you listen to all these people talk about their different um, realms of the industry. And you learn a lot like, whoa, I could do that or I could do this. Um, and it culminates in a job fair, uh, which is really cool. So at the time I knew that uh, I had maybe 13, 1400 hours. I knew I needed turbine time and I needed uh, a way to do that. There's a couple different ways uh, that you can in the helicopter industry. Most people... Um, well, so do you need turbine time to get a job having turbine time in the helicopter industry? For the most part. So it's not like the airlines where they'll take you in a uh, 172. It, sort of. So um, it's sort of a similar track in that most people will build their first 1,000 hours instructing. 
um, and mostly in Robinson products. That's like probably 90% of the industry. You, you instruct in an R22 or an R44 at these flight schools. Um, there are people that will hire lower time, 300, 500 hour people to do like um, tours in Florida, Myrtle Beach. Um, but it's definitely instructing is the common route. You get to like a thousand hours of, of piston helicopter time. And um, there's a couple ways you can do, you can go. A lot of people uh, will go fly tours somewhere. Alaska is a big one. People do tours to the glaciers. Vegas is a big one. You can go from Vegas and see the Grand Canyon. Um, New York is a huge one. People will go right to the downtown Manhattan heliport and you can take tours right around uh, lower Manhattan there. And all of these are introductory turbine jobs that will hire you with no experience and, uh, and teach you to do it well. So I thought, okay, um, I think I think the Grand Canyon would be really cool. So here comes the job fair and I'm walking around and I'm talking to all these people and I have one huge problem. I don't have an instrument rating. And it's not like at the time um, that you're flying IFR through the clouds to go see the Grand Canyon, but insurance wise, um, all of these operators are requiring that you have an instrument rating. So I'm talking to all these people and, and um, trying to put my best foot forward. And they say, I see on your resume that you don't have an instrument rating. And I say, no, I, I don't. And uh, can I ask a question about that? So I've heard that the instrument rating is not as required in the helicopter world um, compared to our fixed Mm -hmm. wing. Like you are almost not credible to go anywhere to any job without an instrument rating in the fixed wing world. It used to be that way. It is now since become, um, we're, we're losing a lot of, of uh, good pilots by flying inadvertent IMC. Um, and so for those who might not know, um, helicopters are n- inherently not as stable as an airplane. And um, there's a huge, huge chunk of accidents, fatal accidents that happen because people continue to push on into deteriorating weather. They're VFR. You need visual reference to fly a helicopter. Um, there. It, wasn't there there's the i mean kobe was Absolutely. Uh, was an a example prime of that example yeah. of somebody who had no doubt extreme pressure from his client to get him to a meeting and pushed on into whether he shouldn't have um, and that even was an example of a an IFR qualified crew and helicopter that that just you know you, I'll, I'll probably butcher the statistic, but it's something like 40 to 50 seconds is the average lifespan of a helicopter pilot who punches in inadvertent um, before you're a smoking hole on the ground, which is, is a scary statistic. So um, there more and more jobs are requiring an instrument rating, even though um, very, very few helicopters are actually rated to go IMC in the clouds. And I didn't have that at the time. Um, and I was just defeated. Um, I flew... I remember flying home from Vegas back to Minnesota and crying the entire way because I was trapped. I had no money. Um, I had literally no way to pay for an instrument rating. I was totally trapped. Um, And by some dumb luck, I got an email with a job offer, but it was conditional, right? If you can get your instrument rating in two months, then here you go. You know, we will absolutely hire you. And uh, there was no way. So I ended up... um, I had just emailed a different company that I had met the guy, um, the director of operations at this job fair. And um, I, I sort of used this job offer to leverage an interview with him. I said, you know, uh, I've got this job offer. I'd really like to take it, um, but but I'd really like to work for your company. Can I get an interview? 
Um, he said, sure, fly on out. So I, I flew back to Vegas, um, interviewed, and I said, you know, guys, I, I don't have an instrument rating. Is that a problem? And he said, no, no problem. Um, it, at the time, it was a company that, that didn't require it, which was amazing. And I ended up taking the job, and it was great. This is a company called Maverick Helicopters in Vegas, and um, a, a really um, A-plus operation. Uh, awesome. And so here we go. I, I packed up my car and drove 27 hours to Vegas, and here I am to start training. This is uh, this is the winter of 2020. I think we we all probably can see where mm-hmm. this is going. And so I get there, and uh, I'm really really giving it my all because I know I have things to prove here, you know. I, um, and so um, I'm studying. I, I I remember studying every night to the point where I fell asleep holding the book. And uh, this is my first part one thirty. Having the job. discipline to study every night in Vegas <laughs> is quite admirable. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you live in Vegas, uh, you realize that um, the rest of the city is just kind of a giant suburb. It's it's like a giant Eden Prairie, right where we're at. Um, and you, but it, it really it was a wild experience living there. Um, so I'm here, I'm studying, it's my first part 135 job. So you're throwing all these regulations and new things that you've never heard before. And I'm going and, um, I, I, I take this check ride and they're pretty demanding. Maverick is an operation that, um, demands excellence, which is wonderful and awesome. Um, and they really need you to be on top of your game, the best of the best. And I, I gave it my all and, uh, passed the check ride and started my first two weeks on the line. So at the time, um, the job was primarily taking groups of people from the Vegas Strip. We were right there on the west side of McCarran, and uh, we'd take them to the Grand Canyon. We'd land for a half hour, give them champagne and snacks, and fly them right back to Vegas. We'd do that sometimes three times a day and um, five days a week, and you just you go, 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 go. Um, unfortunately, my second week on the line, we got an email saying, um, we need to close, and everybody's closing, and we don't know when we can reopen. This is March of 2021. COVID. Right when it hit. Right when it hit. And it was really actually, it was kind of scary. I had flown home back to Minnesota. It was March 16th of 2020 to do my taxes. And I remember I got the email while I was there and I was like, whoa, this is weird. And that night I got on a Sun Country flight back to Vegas and I was the only one on the plane. It was me, the flight attendants and the crew. And I was like, what is happening right now? And so I'm here, I'm alone on this flight back to Vegas. When we landed, it turns out that... um I, I just spoke for a minute as I was leaving with the crew and the, the pilots come out and they go, yeah, um, one of the controllers at Vegas got COVID and they shut the entire tower down. So all of Vegas is ATC zero right now. And I thought, what is happening? Right. And as we all were, there were some super cool, um, like recordings of when Midway yeah, went yeah. down and, oh, you could, totally. and like Southwest was out there making pattern reports. That Absolutely. was super cool. Absolutely. Um, really, really wild to hear, you know, a Southwest <laughs> saying, oh, I'm taxiing yeah. Alpha, you know. And so uh, it was super wild. And here we go for, it turned into, you know, two weeks, turned into a month, turned into two months, three months. And finally they could start opening slowly, but they ended up having to cut from like, I think I was number 48 on the seniority list um, when I hired the first time and they cut down to like eight pilots. And so inevitably the call came, um, sorry, you know, we liked you, but we have nothing for you. So Good luck. Um, and here I am. I had just moved to Vegas a month ago, uprooted my entire life, and I have nothing. So I kind of did the drive of shame. I packed up everything back in my car, almost 30-hour drive back to Minnesota, and I thought, 
what do I do now? Um, at the time, I couldn't really go back to the operation I was at. They had hired a new full-time CFI. There really wasn't more than a couple hours here and there to go around. Um, thankfully, my old boss let me at least stay current and do a stage check here and there just to feel like I was still a pilot. But it was months and months and months of nothing. And at, at that time, I had to I had to find some way to pay the bills. Um, I really got lucky. Um, I just happened to run into at at a quick trip down in Owatonna, where I'm from, a family friend of mine, Jerry, um, and he's uh, he runs Northstar out of Mankato. And he goes, "Well, come on over and can, can you be a line guy? Can you can you fuel?" I said, "Absolutely, I can." So I um, he hired me on the spot, and I went over and I started working five days a week um, fueling planes at Mankato, which was. Um, a humbling experience if you've never done line service before. I have a whole new respect. I've been fortunate too. <laughs> yeah. um, whole new respect for line guys. Um, that job was wild. You've got 25 or 30 flight school airplanes. You've got jets in and out um, and and people always needing fuel. So I was doing that uh, for about a month. And um, at the time when you'd show up to work, I was working the night shift, they'd forward the fuel phone to your cell phone. So your phone's ringing off the hook. Oh, I need fuel in this plane. I need fuel in this plane. We need 1,800 pounds in the citation that came in. Okay, I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm coming. And it's just wild. The phone never stopped ringing. And I was like, oh, my God. And one night, I'm sitting here. Um, I was I was fueling the, the trunk tank of a beach jet, which... Uh, which has, I've heard is not where you want to... There are baffles in there or something yeah. where if you fill too fast, it comes right out at you and soaks you. So I'm soaked in jet fuel. I've got eight flight school airplanes in the queue waiting for fuel and the phone will not stop ringing. So I end up circling back. I'm filling a flight school airplane and my phone's ringing, ringing, ringing. And I look down and it's my boss from Maverick in Vegas. I thought, Oh my God, I'm, I'm going to take it. And he goes, Hey buddy, uh, we, we got a spot for you. Do you want to come back? I said, uh, yeah, I want to come back. And this is, um, so they had closed initially in March and now it's, um, late September of 2020. <laughs> I remember hanging up the phone and I just, I, there's a theme that you'll notice here. I'm a pretty emotional person. I just start bawling. I mean, I'm like, oh, wow, this is actually going to happen again. And this, the poor CFI and student that are like waiting for me to fill their plane are like knocking on the window of the fuel truck like, are you okay? I'm like, I just need a minute. <laughs> um, and um, so I was really, really grateful that they went out on a limb and gave me that job. It's maybe the only regret I, I ever have in my career is, is – um, that night, I, I took off the shirt and handed them the keys and was like, hey, guys, uh, I'm done. I'm done right now. I got to go. Um, and the next day, I packed up my car, drove, and within three days after a training flight, I was back on the line in Vegas. And it was just a crazy flip of events from from going and doing nothing, flying like once a month to now I'm back to, to five days a week. At the time, I, I had Monday and Tuesday off, and we were going all day every day. What's it like? Let's talk about that. What's yeah, it like giving sure. Grand Canyon tours? Like, what, what are the clientele like? Do you did you get just a lot of? I'm sure you got good stories of oh, people doing absolutely. dumb things in Vegas in a helicopter. <laughs> it's it's really really cool to see. On any given day, I would have people from any part of the world, all these different cultures. Um, so it was really a cool way to meet people, and you get to. Um, at the time, you know, you're, you're given a whole spiel, you're given a tour as you go to these people who are asking you questions and flying. Um, and it was really, really awesome to see the type of people that came to check out the Grand Canyon via helicopter. Um, and you get to really meet a lot of people. Now, some of those people, um, didn't want to listen as well as others. People don't really understand the gravity of what they're doing. 
um, which as it should be, right? You you want to go on a helicopter tour and and feel safe and you know la la la. It's super happy and that's great. Um, but there are certain you know definitely people that we had problems with people opening doors. You know, no matter how many times in the brief you tell them, you know. I'll open the door for you when we land. Inevitably, there's somebody that tries to walk out, right? Um, but it was really, really cool. A, a very diverse array of people that I got to work with. The pilot group was amazing. I miss them very, very dearly. Uh, we'd always go in packs. So like eight, 10 helicopters at a time, half mile spacing. We're trying oh, really? to That's the pretty Grand cool. Canyon. Yeah. And we land. Um, they just had a, a spot carved out of the cliff down in the canyon. So you're looking 1,000 feet down to the river, 3,000 feet up to the wall, and there's little tiny flat spots, and we'd all pile in in a certain way, and, and there's picnic tables. We'd land and hang out. It's awesome. Also, a very challenging um, flying environment in Vegas. You've got, um, in the summertime, extreme temperatures, like 115 degrees. Um, and they had AC, but it's, it's not great. Um, so it's a very hot environment. How does the AC work on a um, on like a turbine helicopter? Is it is it the same bleed it, air pack really, kind of situation uh, that it, we have? Or? It kind of depends on the type. Uh, at the time in in Vegas, it was um, some of them were like retrofit because they didn't come with them, so it was kind of just like uh, a belt spinning a condenser that was then blowing cold air in, um, and they didn't work great. Um, the The helicopter I fly now, uh, which we'll get to it in a sec, is um, is just similar to an airliner, right? It's like a stage turbine bleeder that comes in and mixes, condenses, cools, and then yeah. is injected, you know, heat or cold into the cabin. Um, but uh, a very, very challenging flying environment, high DAs, uh, hot temperatures. You're always within, you know, I remember you'd go and, and get your manifest right before you called your group. And it's like, there's like 0.2. And that number is I'm 0.2 below max gross weight. So I'm heavy, heavy, heavy. Yeah. It's hot, high DAs. And it's a it's a really um, it's a baptism by fire environment where you're coming in and uh, landing on this cliff and you need every millimeter of power that you can pull. You know, you set right there, right on the transient, and you're kind of bouncing into the transient just to to have enough power to sort of lift off this cliff and uh, and fly away, which is um, a very humbling way to learn power management, um, which is super super valuable, um, and um, Really, really, I, I appreciated my time there, and it was awesome. We're giving tours of the Grand Canyon. We're living in Vegas, right? Absolutely. You've got to have great stories. Absolutely. Tell us your best one. Um, the best one I can think of is um, I'll 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 ser- I'll stray away from maybe something crazy, inappropriate, people related because you see a lot of that stuff. Um, to uh, some of the the monsoon season storms that hit Vegas, you think of Vegas as a dry, arid environment, which it is for. 350 days of the year. But in monsoon season, kind of late summer, huge, powerful storms roll through there. And we're on our way back from the canyon and um, we're listening to the Vegas Aedis coming in. It was like 56 gusts, 75. And we're like, uh, oh, okay. And all of a sudden in front of us, we're probably 20 miles east of Vegas coming in. You can see the buildings and stuff over the ridge. You can almost see the gust front moving towards you. As Did you not bother up. to check the TAF before you left? <laughs> it, was there. it was just so – it happened so fast that that all of a sudden, boom, here's this pop-up storm. It developed. It's here. This gust front's moving towards us, and w- it hits us, and we're in a line of seven, eight of us, and we're like, whoa, whoa, this is crazy. So visibility's dropping, um, and we see down to our left is this huge boat ramp 
to launch into Lake Mead. We're kind of flying around uh, Lake Mead. And so we circle back in a line and we're all sort of landing staggered onto this boat launch. Um, and I remember as I, I was kind of maybe the second to last one in, and I remember looking down and my airspeed was 90 and my ground speed was 20. And I remember thinking like, whoa, like this is a headwind like I've never, ever experienced before. And it's like, you know, shaking, rattling. And uh, it took every bit of uh, finesse to kind of get it down in the parking lot. And all of a sudden we've got six or seven loads of passengers and we're just waiting out the storm here in, uh, in Sitting the Sitting on a lot. boat ramp at Lake Mead. On a boat ramp at like the Colville Bay Marina. And uh, and that was just wild. So again, um, a very diverse experience from a flying standpoint. You have all kinds of weather, winds. Um, mountain flying is a lot different than flat flying here in Minnesota where you got winds swirling. Oh, I tell my stu- I used to tell my students that all the time. Yeah, absolutely. They'd be like, oh, it'd be so cool to go fly in Aspen. I was like, <laughs> yeah. It's a different <laughs> yeah. ballgame. Um, there were times where there's wind socks, three different ones on the same point, and they're all pointing a different direction. And um, it's just a really humbling and wild environment. Um, but inevitably... You spend a couple summers in Vegas. It's hot. You're working five days a week, um, and it's it's a grind. Um, and I thought, okay, maybe it's time. At, at the time, I was pretty homesick and kind of wanting to make it back to Minnesota somehow, some way. I didn't really know how that had happened. Again, I had a huge barrier. I had no instrument rating, um, and I knew that at this point, I would need it to to move on to to anything else. Um, so at the time I had saved a year's worth of tips, cash tips. I, it was, it was piling up. I was hiding money in the vents of my apartment and in the bottom of the garbage can. And I'd saved all of it. And I went and paid cash and did, uh, did my instrument rating in an R44 up at uh, North Las Vegas. And so for about four months, I flew every day. Um, my two days off, I was going and just hammering approaches. Um, if anybody listening has flown in Vegas, Northtown is insane. 25 uh, planes minimum always in the practice area, um, just dodging left and right. Um, Nellis approaches working uh, arrivals into um, people doing practice approaches, jets coming in. It is wild. It's like see and avoid. Nobody's talking. It's crazy. So we're out there just throwing down approaches, throwing down approaches. And uh, eventually I was able to take my instrument check ride. Um, and uh, at that point, um, I was I was pretty run down. I was getting sick once a week. Uh, my body was like, dude, you got to slow down. You're, you're, you're going way too, way too uh, hard and fast. And so it was time to sort of find something else. Um, by chance, I was kind of circling uh, the job website, seeing what was around. And I found a posting for an air ambulance pilot in Bemidji, Minnesota, of all places. Um, at the time, I had never been to Bemidji. Um, we had kind of gone up north as kids to go vacation in the summers, go on a fishing trip, but I didn't know anything about it. And I was looking and okay, I, I, I meet the requirements. Um, most air ambulance jobs at about 2000 hours with um, a couple 500 hours of turbine time. Now you're sort of minimally qualified to, to go into an air ambulance operation. Um, and a lot of people will stay there their entire career. That's a, a really good, um, awesome uh, part of this industry that you can settle into. It's rewarding work, um, great, challenging flying. You could go um, from there, people go corporate. Uh, some people in big cities have, uh, like the Kobe, right? So um, people with a lot of money who value their time in a big city will charter a helicopter to and from places. 
You can go into utility. Uh, people might have seen as you're driving down the freeway, there's helicopters with guys hanging off them working on power lines. Um, people, uh, you can work in, in wildland fire. There's a, now more than ever, uh, fire season is crazy out west. And a lot of that is done by inserting helitech crews uh, to go in and fight the flames or drop in buckets of water. So there's really a lot of places you can go. But I kind of had my mindset on I need to get home and I want to be back with my friends and family. And so I took a shot and uh, interviewed for this job and um, I, I ended up taking it. And so last October, I moved back to um, to Minnesota. It's actually kind of a funny, funny thing. I was I happened to fly home to go to the state fair. I never miss a state fair. Um, and I was up on the north side of the state fair looking at the boats and I got an email like, with a, a job offer. And I thought, whoa, how cool. I'm at the fair. I'll never be able to top this again. So I flew back to Vegas and packed my stuff up uh, a couple weeks later, um, uh, finished out work in Vegas, and I, I moved back and started training here. So that takes us right to now. I've been a year now uh, flying air ambulance in northern Minnesota in the Augusta 109S, which is a twin engine, Italian, very fast, uh, a twin turbine helicopter that does a pretty good job of what we needed to do, which is get somewhere fast, um, safely. What is it? What is a cruise at? Or I don't know what the helicopter term is. What is it? Yeah, that's a, that's a straight and level over the ground. Good point. So, um, most turbine single helicopters are somewhere in the 110, 125 knot cruise range. You get into some of the heavier twins, maybe you're 125, 140, uh, the VNE on the on the Augusta 109 is 168 knots, which in the helicopter world is flying. That's about as fast as it gets without going uh, to something super cool, fast military. Um, so uh, very, I, I feel very privileged to uh, fly such a really unique and cool airframe. Um, I, I've never been more proud to to fly a helicopter. It's really really cool. Um, so I can just kind of talk a little bit about what we do. So. Um, most, I'll just kind of speak broadly for most air ambulance operations. It's kind of interesting. You can go anywhere in the U S and you're probably within, uh, 20, 30 miles of an air medical helicopter. Um, and they're spaced intentionally so that, um, they can be strategic about where you can go. So it's uh, it's single pilot IFR and we always have a three crew. So it's a pilot, a nurse and a paramedic. And the nurse and paramedic are very skilled in critical care. So we take um, people who are very, very sick, whether that be a trauma, a car accident, somebody who's um, very, very sick in a hospital in a small town, rural area. They can't, they don't have the resources to treat you. So we'll get a request to transfer you from um, a very small rural hospital to uh, a level one trauma center that can handle um, what you need to, to help you. Um, and so that's a vast majority of what we do. About 80% is taking somebody from a small hospital to a bigger place, somewhere like Fargo, Duluth, Minneapolis. You've got five, six very capable trauma hospitals in Minneapolis alone. Um, and when you're up in the middle of nowhere, like north of Bemidji, um, there's nothing there. And a lot of times if you have a, a car accident or you know you cut your leg off with a chainsaw or something, you get burned, you need to go somewhere like HCMC or uh, North Memorial where you need um, that, that super high level of care. So we will, we will take you there. And a lot of times speed is your friend, especially with strokes and 
heart attacks, um, the faster you can get somewhere to treat you, the better your chances of survival become. So um, there's bases spread out across the state and we uh, we show up. It's a 12-hour shift and um, we just kind of wait. We're there at the hangar. I, I, I'll show up and pre-flight the helicopter and um, give a, a crew brief on the weather and any concerns for the day. And then we just kind of wait for uh, the loud alarm to go off and we'll get a request. Um, some days that could be nothing. Some days it could be four or five transfers in a row, the entire 12 hours. Uh, it's part 135, so we can fly up to 14 hours. And a lot of times uh, we'll get extended you know, if you get a late request. So it can be 14 hours uh, at work, um, which is a lot. We'll do um, seven days in a row, seven 12-hour shifts, the pilots, and then we'll have seven days off, which is kind of nice. Um, you kind of know my schedule and definitely helps a lot to to plan things. Um, so, yeah, that is that is what we do. Um, somebody, a hospital or some someone will, or, or maybe um, EMS on scene at an accident will request us. Um, before we ever know what it is, we'll check weather and then say yes or no, um, depending on uh, if the weather is acceptable. And then from there, we'll launch and go do this flight. It could be any time, day or night. We fly at night using night vision goggles, uh, which is really, really cool. Um, high-tech stuff, white phosphor. Um, for anyone nerdy that loves MVGs, it's the Anvis 9 platform, which is really, really cool um, and very, very valuable at night. Um, if, if anyone's been up north, you can go from Bemidji to International Falls and it's just nothing. There's not a house, not a person. It's just woods. And at three in the morning, uh, it helps, even though you just see a little circle wherever you point your head, it helps to be able to see at least what's down below you. Um, and it's a little bit, uh, it's nicer to have two engines now, uh, just that little peace of mind. So what goes into the process of picking somebody up yeah. that's on the side of a road, right? I mean... For us to land the jet, it requires so much like Absolutely. planning from, you know, up, you have to talk to all these people. You've got to brief it like crazy. It could be the same runway right. up in Bemidji, right? When you take the tuner up there. Sure. And every time you treat it like it's the first time and it's the biggest thing ever. I couldn't imagine taking a helicopter and landing it on a road and just making an assessment uh, on the fly. Absolutely. So... Um, I'll preface this by saying there's no way I can I can cover every little detail. Um, there's there's a lot involved um, when a request comes in. Let's say um, somebody has a, a car accident on the highway somewhere. Um, whoever's there, EMS will call a dispatch center who will then find the appropriate closest helicopter, essentially give you coordinates and say, this is where you're going. Um, can you accept it? You um, my job is a little bit different than the crew. The crew is focused on helping whoever is sick be better, right? Um, give them the, the the care that they need um, to 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 survive maybe a, a, a trauma or a, some some sort of critical accident. My job is more um, I'm responsible for the safety of all of us to get from point A to point B. So I have no I have no part in in patient care. My job is just simply to make sure safely we can get from uh, from the, the spot we're going to the receiving facility back home with, with nothing. So um, a common misconception is that we're, we're really, we're always crunched for time, right? We're running to the helicopter. No, it's uh, everything happens very slow and methodical. Um, 
we take time to to look at the weather. Um, we plot, uh, figure out you know where we're going. If if it needs to be an IFR flight, right? Then it it adds even more time. We need to file, pick up a clearance. Um, the important thing to remember is that we're not running nine one one calls. So any request we get, somebody is already in the care of someone. They just need a higher level of care for us to get there. So um, usually it's like eight, 10 minutes from a request that comes in where we can be launched and on our way somewhere. Um, it's nice. That's still pretty fast. It's still pretty That's fast. Still pretty it's fast. still pretty fast. But I want to emphasize that we're never, we're never, we're never rushing, right? Especially at night. It's, so it's not like the conception of like firemen sliding exactly. down the pole to exactly. the helicopter. We're walking to the helicopter. We're doing walk arounds. We're making sure everything is secure and ready to go, taking our time um, because um, so if it is a scene, um, we'll go and we, we just have coordinates is all. And on the way, we'll we'll be handed off to somebody on the ground who via radio can tell us, here's the spot we set up for you. We have it secure. And um, these are the is obstacles. Is that a legal term they have to use? We have it secure or something? Like- right. So we never land somewhere um, except for an airport that isn't secured by somebody on the ground, right? So somebody that can tell us, to their best knowledge, where are the obstacles and we have some sort of perimeter, so someone's not going to run into the tip. And are paramedics trained in doing that? Like Yes. Um, so a lot of times it's first responders or police um, or whoever is, is responding to that accident that's not in direct care of the patient. So um, let's say, okay, uh, they'll say, yep, we've got uh, this stretch of highway that we've got traffic blocked from both sides. The wind is out of this direction. There's a power line running on the west side. There's trees running on the east side. And we say, okay, we can start to build a mental picture. When we get there, uh, let's say it's at night, is when we really um, sort of buckle down, do a bunch of recons, a high recon, a low recon. We're orbiting this area, verifying what they say, because you can't ever trust that in the middle of the night, somebody can see everything. Um, power lines are a huge killer of helicopters. Um, they're they're nearly invisible. And when you hit them, it's like game over. So um, we're always checking power lines, obstacles, poles, trees, anything. Once we can safely determine we have an entry and an exit plan, the wind is good, we're going to land, then we will set down, shut down, um, load up the patient, and and go to wherever they need to go to. Have you ever been told a landing area is secure and then gone over it with a spotlight and found no... Absolutely. It happens more times than you would think um, because the reality of it is people don't know what's required. I've had people say, I've got a great clear spot set up for you, and it's like a 20 foot wide road with 300 foot trees on either side. And we're like, no, we're actually looking at a field that's a half mile away. We're going to land there. So we're going to circle. And can you go over there and set that up? So a lot of times we'll pick a new spot. That's a lot better uh, and meet them there. So that's sort of the name of the game. Um, It's been really, really rewarding. And um, I found that this job calls upon every hour of experience that I've ever had. Um, Oh, I can't imagine the intensity it's um, helicopter. What drew me to helicopters to start is, like you said, there is um, there is an intense f- intensity factor to flying. Um, it's not hands off. So if you let go of the cyclic control of a helicopter, you're going to start um, you, very very quickly. Within seconds, you'll be in an unusual attitude. So it's a very hands on type of flying. It's um, very uh, requires a lot of finesse. Um, Things that I didn't realize were different when I later in my life started flying airplanes. Um, so that, uh, you know, on a night where the weather is, um, I'm a very conservative pilot when it comes to weather because 
I don't want to go out and find out if I have superior skill. I'd rather just avoid it to, to begin with. I'm not a top gun. Um, so there are nights where there's thunderstorms rolling in or a low uh, fog layer. Now that we're in winter, there's icing and all these things. So um, we kind of use every bit of knowledge we have from our, our entire career to make a weather go or no go decision. We can abort at any time if we run into weather that was not reported or forecast, which is really nice. We're never questioned. Um, it's safety is paramount. How often are you taking people, say, to a faster plane? Not to a hospital, but we're going to get you to like Fargo Airport so that you can get on this Learjet and get to Arizona or something. It or... happens, but um, in that, that would be a special case where somebody was maybe, let's say somebody was visiting Minnesota from Arizona, needed to get there eventually. Um, and like helicopters, there's also a ton of fixed-wing air ambulance, which is really good. Yeah, the PC-12. Exactly. Like, yeah. You see they're a dime a dozen, right? Um, and they're very good at, A, when the weather's too poor for helicopters to go, we can send a fixed-wing because they have you know anti-ice capabilities and um, can can land in, in much lower minimums than we can, uh, which is really great and something to to help out on, on those really terrible weather nights when people are actually sick. Um, but for the most part, uh, we never will overfly the nearest capable receiving facility. So um, up in Northwest Minnesota, it's usually Fargo. Sanford is a level one trauma center there. Um, if you're down Southern Minnesota, usually it's the Metro uh, Southeast Minnesota, Rochester mm-hmm. is always there. So there's these big um, places that um, with rare exception, you would, would never actually fly someone past regardless of if it's the company affiliated or not, we always take them to the best spot for their, their outcome. So two more questions for you, and then we'll move on to some trivia. Um, First question I want to ask is it's really easy as a fixed wing pilot to see, okay, this is my career progression, private instrument, commercial CFI, 1500 hours regional. Yep. But it sounds to me like that pathway is not as defined in the helicopter world. You know, for us, our big hours, 500 hours kind of is your first credible resume. Then 1,200 hours for those 135 minutes. Then 1,500 hours for the ATP. What is the, what are the kind of the, what are the toll gates along the way in a helicopter? It's, you're absolutely right. It's certainly not as defined. And there's certainly much there's there's a lot less of us out there um although that demand is building a little bit with um more and more helicopter pilots leaving to go to the fixed wing industry there's a lot more holes that open up a lot more demand for people um but typically a thousand hours is a huge one just like it is in fixed wing um once you can get there you're eligible to insurance right it's it's usually insurance who's driving all of these these minimums um, you're eligible to move on to something with a turbine. Um, that's a very desirable thing in the helicopter world. You need to eventually fly something with a turbine because everything from there on up is going to involve uh, something like that. So, and it's it's a skill that is just has a little more consequences, right? If in a in a 172, just like a, a piston R22, if you pull over the uh, the the max that you've got a piston engine is probably not going to self-destruct right there if you just for one second over pull. But as we know, a turbine, if you over torque it or over temp it, it's now all of a sudden a $500,000 repair, right? So the consequences are a lot steeper. You need more experience to get into that. You build um, 
time flying a turbine. And then once you get about 2,000 hours with some turbine time is really when almost every door opens. You can go, like I said before, you can do corporate, you could do um, air ambulance, you could do um, firefighting, um, tours, uh, all, all these things. So that's sort of the thing, but they're, they're uh, utility there there's really not a defined it's it's not like i'm going to go to a regional i'm going to go to a major and i'm going to spend 30 years at that major i i really don't know what i'm going to do 10 years 20 years from now maybe if i'm lucky enough i'll still be flying um, yeah that medical any day you're right yeah. right <laughs> so um it's it really isn't as defined and and maybe that's kind of what draws me to it is is there's some of that mystery and it's cool to to maybe not do something the way that all these other people are doing it. And, and um, it's a more intense and, and hands-on type of flying that um, really keeps me there um, because certainly uh, the money and lifestyle could be 10 times better as a 55-year-old Delta captain. But maybe that's not the flying that all of us, some of us want to do for the rest of our lives. You know, it's just it, it to, to each their own, I think. Yeah. The other question I had for you was um, how did you like flying fixed wing? You know, because you were talking about how Great it's question. much more stable, and I'm sitting there like, yeah, like I can, like on climb out, I can trim that jet to 250, and I wouldn't even have to touch it. Absolutely. It would fly at 250 in a nice climb for me, and until some other factor intervened, whether I need to speed up for the profile sure. or we've just gotten higher, it'll fly. So I started flying airplanes in 2019, back when I was still instructing. Um, as at the time it was something I needed, I felt I needed to do just to keep flying fun. Um, I think at, all of us who've been busy instructors in the past know that sometimes it really starts to feel like a job. You get burnt out. And at the time I was like, I'm going to go learn to fly an airplane just for me. I'm going to get a private license so I can have fun and learn something new. Um, so I came here to in-flight and just like uh, once again, like a, a little nervous student. And I was like, I, can you explain to me how this works? And um, there's a few key differences I noticed right away. Um, in an airplane, unlike a helicopter, there's a lot more time um, involved, which is kind of a luxury. Um, a lot of times in in an engine failure in a helicopter, within 10, 15 seconds, you're on the ground already. Um, and I, I can remember going out to a practice area in, in a 172 for the first time. And it was like, okay. We're gonna we're gonna cut the engine now, and I'm ready. I'm like, okay, let's do it. And you cut the engine, and it's like, and you oh, you've just, got forever. It's like minutes before minutes. you have to minutes. configure to land yep. in a spot. I always told my students, you know, in Minnesota, <laughs> you've got no pressure. Right. If you lose your engine, right. like, sure, you're gonna have to answer to the FAA. You're gonna have to talk to the FISDO. Yeah. You know, you're gonna have to talk to insurance probably, but you're gonna be fine. Yeah, <laughs> it's really on you if you mess this up for sure. So for to compare that to a Robinson R22, um, it's a what's called a low inertia rotor system. So it, I don't want to bog too much down into the specifics of it, but a helicopter, unlike an airplane, um, if you imagine an airplane needs airflow over the wing, and then you need to increase the angle of attack to gain lift. A helicopter, we spin all of those blades, and by spinning them, we create that sort of... Um, we simulate that effect of flying an airplane through the air, right? And as you uh, raise the control called the collective, you increase the pitch of all the blades at the same time, and you create lift that just by the blade spinning is sort of the same thing as an airplane moving forward. Basically, what that means is 
we can now fly at any airspeed, zero to VNE, and um, really have no effect other than you require some more power in certain areas than other. Um, wh where I was going with this is, in an engine failure in an R22, if you do nothing, you have somewhere between, like, I'll butcher the statistic again, but somewhere between a second and a half and two seconds before the blades stall and you have zero recovery and you're a falling brick out of the sky, um, which is definitely nerve wracking when you're in the student environment. And um, as as you know, students are always inventing new ways to try to kill you, right? Um, and it it's... It's intense, and you you can never let your guard down. And like I said, uh, in an engine failure, you can auto-rotate to the ground, and it's usually about 10, 15 seconds, and you're there. Um, all that being said, I would still rather lose an engine in a helicopter any day over an airplane because you can flare and stop it with almost zero ground run anywhere, a cul-de-sac, um, a parking lot. You have a lot more options um, than an airplane where you need some sort of clear area ahead of you. Um, uh, to, to at least set the airplane down without, you know, balling it up. In One a, thing in I always found interesting was people's perception of how much space they needed to slow down the plane. The, in an Absolutely. emergency landing, was way longer than what it actually takes. You know, if I put a 172 down in a cornfield, that thing's going to stop really quickly. Yeah. And I'd go with students who would pass a perfectly fine, you know, 1,000-foot lengths of cornfield. I'm like, dude, you could stop this plane with... Totally. With, with in a normal situation on that, and they're looking far away for five thousand feet. I even think the I actually think that the airplane flying handbook even mentions that. Really, that people. I mean, I could. I think we have a copy of it in here, <laughs> but I could. I could definitely look over there right now and probably pull out that section for you. Yeah, where it says people tend to overestimate how long the sure. ground roll is in, oh, in, in, a, in an emergency. Super landing. long, super long. Um, so that's sort of the one. Um, major differences, I realized time. The second thing I realized is how stable it was. You can trim out an airplane and let go, and it will keep doing what you left it doing, which is really something that amazed me coming from the helicopter world where if you let go of the controls, you'll be upside down in, in a couple seconds, um, which is which was really something kind of unique. Um, so since then, airplanes have really become sort of my relaxation. Um, I joined a, a great flying club up in Bemidji. Shout out to Bemidji Flying Club. We've got a Cherokee and a 150. And Oh, I um, follow you guys on Instagram. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Is it the green 150? The green 150. Yeah. I went to Oshkosh or something and you got to follow. It was yeah, there. Yeah. 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 So um, there's there's now like 16 of us and um, it's really great. Uh, a, a great little community there. And we, you can, you know, take the airplanes up and, and go for fun. And there's something to me now about going up to 5,000 and trimming it out and, just enjoying the view, right? It's a little bit, um, maybe a little bit more relaxing than the flying that I do uh, on a daily basis. Would you ever consider a conversion and going over to the airlines? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, because if you think it's if, if you think it's pretty at five thousand <laughs> trimmed out in one fifty two, let me tell you what it's like. Let me tell you what it's like. Not even flying the plane, having an autopilot fly it at like thirty five thousand. Sure. Yeah. Believe it or not, there was a time um, when I was still instructing. When I was trapped, I had no instrument rating. Where um, they were, some of these regional airlines were offering a rotor transition program. Where I they think would, they still do. They probably with still how do. desperate they are, yeah. you they will would, give you. They'll probably give you hundred thousand. Yeah. yeah, tens of thousands of dollars to convert to get get the. It's it's about two hundred and fifty PIC that you need um, in a fixed wing to then 
you know, the rest of your time counts for the ATP minimums. Um, and in return, you give them a couple years. And um, certainly we've seen in the last couple months that like the pay from the regional oh, it's lucrative. Said, it's, it's lucrative. I've, it's I make insane. more now. I make more now at my regional than I did in my prior consulting. I thought it would be sure. years for me yeah, to yeah, recoup right. my salary that I had prior to um, being in aviation. Sure. Instantaneously. Well, not instantaneously, like a year in. Yeah. A year in and I'm already Absolutely. You know, at the airlines. I'm making more than I did. In my consulting career, oh, it, it's just, it, it, and I'm sure is that is that is that pulling people away from rotor now just because it's so absolutely lucrative to be a absolutely a fixed and, wing pilot. And how could you blame them? Um, but you know, from a helicopter standpoint, the the money is typically not what will drive us. You know, it's 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 for a love of 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 the machine and the helicopter. Um, I used to go and. Every day, every day on my way home from instructing at Anoka, I had to drive back to my grandma's house and I'd stop at the famous Spotters Lot. Shout out the Spotters Lot, right at Minneapolis. Oh, the one in a the, the uh, one, the in one the right cargo. by FedEx there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I I just sit and I'd get a uh, I'd get a slushy from the gas station and I just watch these jets land and land. If the if it's uh, if they're using the one twos, it's really oh, it's good. perfect, perfect landing yeah. at sunset. And uh, I was out there. I was actually out there yesterday. Yeah. Because um, I just took the dog over there. Something to do. Oh, it's great. Because I don't, I'm not around planes enough, you know, I, I don't, <laughs> you have to be I'm around not around planes enough and I don't get to watch them land enough. I don't yeah. get to, so I had to scratch the edge even more. So for a time I thought, wow, this is, I, I really want to do this and it's maybe my way out. Um, at the time I was kind of didn't have a way forward. Thank in hindsight, it was great that I didn't do that because I would have been going through training in the start of 2020 and it probably wouldn't have ended well. Um, just from, from the COVID, uh, you know, kind of hit that the industry took. Thankfully, it's since more than recovered, right? But um, well, I don't think if it wasn't for COVID, I don't think this pay, these pay yeah. bumps, and all this would have happened. Right. So, COVID was a terrible two-year stretch for the industry, but for a lot of pilots, myself, I'm I'm lumping myself into this. I mean, it's probably the best thing that could have yeah. happened for us financially. Oh, absolutely. So. Um, there That's may... not to discount all the no, people no, no. that were laid off yeah, and, yeah, yeah, of you know, and furloughed and whatnot. But... So to answer the original question, there may come a day decades from now where I decide um, that I want to change or a new challenge or, or something different. Uh, but for now, um, I'm 26 and just having a lot of fun. Um, you'll probably agree that once you become good at something like flying, it's kind of fun to do your job and be good at it um, and to experience it and the there's just something about the the hands-on um version of helicopter flying that that keeps me there and draws me there and and i still love it i still i've never once been bummed to go into work even even if i got you know five hours of sleep from flying late the night before i've always wanted to be there and i think that's something valuable no matter what uh no matter what you do for your career whether you fly or not if you if you go in and you love it um you probably should stick around. Yeah, that's good advice. Okay, I've got five helicopter trivia questions Ooh. to finish us off. All right. I think reasonably you should get. I'm a big fan of the trivia section. Three so of them. You have to get three out of five to win. Okay, three out of five to win. But I think two of these are like pretty easy. I probably could have gotten them knowing nothing about <laughs> helicopters. Okay. All right. Who invented the first helicopter? Igor Sikorsky. Yep. What model was the first mass-produced helicopter? 
The Bell 47? I have it as the R4 by Sikorsky. R4. Okay. So we're talking. Yeah, the three, first. Three, I said the okay. first. The first. The first. Ooh. All right. What is the highest altitude ever recorded by a helicopter that like someone's flown one up to? Oh, I know what happened on Mount Everest. Ah, interesting. But that's not the question. I know. That's the highest it's landed. I'm going to say. Which, which coincidentally was the next question. But this current question is, what's the highest altitude a helicopter's been up to? I'm going to say, I'm just going to stab like 28,000 feet. I show flight level 420. No way. Yeah. That's what I looked up and found. There's a, there's a famous story out there of a guy who took a helicopter crazy, crazy high and ended up flaming out and did like the world's longest auto rotation. Oh, that's pretty cool. I used to watch them auto, do their auto rotations here on a yeah. practicing at Flying Cloud. It's, it's cool. And I was like, man, I thought having a power off 180 was bad. <laughs> All right, all right. Here we go. Okay. Perfunctory will ask this question: What's the highest altitude a helicopter has ever landed? I'm going to say thirty-four thousand. Well, you had the answer. Right? Yeah, it's the t- whatever, however high Mount Everest. Mount Everest is, is like twenty-eight or twenty-eight. Okay. All right. All right. Last one. Ready? I'm ready. You actually have to get this because you've gotten two right and two wrong. <sighs> what is the largest helicopter ever built? It's. It's Russian. Yes. I'm going to say the MI-26. Nicely done. Yeah. yeah it's the MI-26. It. It's called the Halo. Watch. For everyone listening, YouTube right now, the MI-26 helicopter. It's Russian. It looks really weird. It's huge. And it's cool. All right. There we go, everybody. <laughs> That's your homework. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Drew. It, it was yeah. A, it was fun. Pleasure. This was another episode of Living in Flight. If you liked this episode, please make sure to subscribe for more exclusive aviation content. Have any topic ideas or want to be featured on our podcast? Send us a message at listen at livinginflight.com. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, this is Living in Flight.